Hey everyone, close your eyes, picture a Dune. Today's book is Dune. I'm Kellen Erskine, I'm a comic, a father, and after hearing very mixed reviews about this book my entire life, I'm happy to report that after reading it for the first time, everyone was right. <laughs> and I'm David Vance. I've read this book a couple times. One of those times I was in a relationship that was at a rough patch and we were on a cross country trip and she kept wanting to talk about it. And I was like, uh, I'm trying to listen to Dune. <laughs> Dune asks the question, what happens if you create a sci-fi world incredibly rich in history, ecology, science and sociology, and then make every character the same? And this is the book pile. So I'm not crapping on Dune. But I do think if you love Dune, it's because you love the world. It's not because you like want to be Gurney Halleck for Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> so one cool part of Dune is that the Bene Gesserit can use the voice to force people to obey them. So here it goes. Rate and review our podcast. Okay, if you're just waking up from a trance where you rated our podcast, it's because I used the voice. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Harmon Illustration says, I'm not usually one of those people who writes reviews for things, but then Kellen said that nobody's favorite dinosaur could possibly be the Ankylosaurus. That crossed the line. <laughs> this is the weirdest solidarity I have ever felt. <laughs> it's still a, a success for me so far that this is the most triggering thing I've ever said in a public arena. <laughs> <laughs> Later, he says, anyways, love the podcast. You guys keep it up. You're awesome. Uh, a little announcement. The sitcom I wrote for has started airing. It's called Freelancers Season 2. You can watch it for free on the Angel Studios app. And my musical episode will be Season 2, Episode 7. And it will shock you to learn it is fantasy themed. <laughs> and if it's been your fantasy to see me live, I'm going to be headlining at Hilarities Comedy Club in Cleveland. Don't know what state that's in. December 2nd through the 4th. Go to hilarities.com. I actually don't know the website. Go to their website for tickets. Also, I'm going to be at Wise Guys in downtown Salt Lake City, December 9th through the 11th. Go to wiseguyscomedy.com. Also, if you want me to come perform in your city, one thing you can do is email your local comedy club and ask them when Kellen Erskine will be performing there. It's like calling your senator, but more important because this can actually make a difference. <laughs> and if you want me to come to your city and write stuff, <laughs> send me like, I don't know, a pin, I guess. <laughs> Finally, our next two books are The Wondrous Workings of Planet Earth and Big Little Lies, which would have been a great name for a show about the love life of General George Custer. All right, without further ado, here are four lessons that we learned from Dune. I think that's the shortest book title I've ever said on this podcast. <laughs> Dune. There we go. All right. Lesson one, create believable cultures. So one thing I really enjoyed about this book uh, were the, the new cultures that Herbert created, which were associated as cultures are to their regions. I think the problem with a lot of science fiction is that they don't dig any deeper than a few like artistic brainstormed renderings of, hey, wouldn't it look cool if these people wore these things? It's, it's like, hey, I, mm -hmm. I know you've seen 
two eyes. Okay, sit down. <laughs> right. It's like in Star Trek, Vulcans have pointy ears and they're smart and they all wear well-pressed clothing. And that's it. That's the culture. <laughs> but I think the reason why the, the culture of the Fremen people is so realistic to me is because it's built the way that a culture would be influenced by the surrounding terrain and weather. Mm -hmm. So, for example, the sandworms are sort of a deity to them. They call them the makers. They also use parts of them to make weapons. They use them for transportation. The clothes they have protect them by trapping in their own moisture. And with the new movie that came out, I feel like they really dropped the ball by not selling dune diapers. <laughs> Call it a, a still suit loincloth. <laughs> it loses only a thimble full of moisture each day. <laughs> It, re it repurposes the fluids directly into a baby bottle. <laughs> That's disgusting. I don't That's know if so I want gross. <laughs> But they had <laughs> in the movie. I don't know if I remembered it from the book. They're collecting water in their thermoses after sleeping in their tent, and Paul says something about how it's their sweat and tears. Again, Gatorade could have jumped on this dune thing. So also their social customs are based on a world with little water. For example, the only funny part in the entire book uh, is when a Fremen leader, having been invited to a meeting full of high-status men from House Atreides, he walks in and just spits on the table. And right before everyone attacks him, we discover that it's a sign of respect that he would give up some of his moisture to the room. <laughs> I'm going to say that the next time I wet my pants in a Starbucks. <laughs> I mean, if I ever do. So that's just one of many examples, but I appreciated the thoroughness that Herbert took. Where he, he came up with all of these customs that were based around the, the scarcity of water. I do appreciate just the richness of these cultures to the point that the book almost feels like Lord of the Rings, where it's like, all right, he's, he clearly spent forever developing cultures, languages, sociology, customs, that kind of thing. Mm. But then at the same time, it's like, oh, there are like no character arcs in this book. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me how Legolas grows. <laughs> he has one dwarf friend, so now he can say he's cool with dwarves. <laughs> so as much as in my next point, I will make fun of how one-dimensional the personalities are in this story, I did enjoy being immersed in a rich three-dimensional culture. All right, lesson two. Look out for madman theory. So there's this thing called madman theory, and... The basic idea is pretend like you're crazy so people don't mess with you. So Nixon used it in Vietnam, but this was also when he was probably taking alcohol and sleeping pills together, so maybe he didn't need to pretend. <laughs> <laughs> so Paul Atreides uses it in Dune because the whole universe relies on the spice, including Paul. And Paul's like, I'm going to blow it up if you don't back down. And everyone's like, holy crap, he's crazy. Do what he says. <laughs> and he has this great quote, the people who can destroy a thing, they control it. And it reminds me of something my friend Kelsey once told me, which is, whoever loves least controls the relationship. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> That's so scary and powerful. <laughs> anyway, I don't know if madman theory works or if it's a good idea. There's debate about that. But you definitely see it. Like, the crazier person wins the game of chicken. Or everyone loses. <laughs>
So Bill Watterson, the Calvin and Hobbes creator, he didn't want to sell out and have merchandise and licensing. And the comic syndicate had the legal right to do all those things. But Bill was like, if you do it, I will never write another comic strip. And they were like, holy crap, he's going to blow this all up. Do what he says. <laughs> so in the documentary, Dear Mr. Watterson, how have I not heard about this? It's unfortunately like not well made. It's, oh, okay. it's somebody's labor of love. And he did get some interviews with some renowned cartoonists, but it's just not well put together. Um, <laughs> Sometimes a labor of love, you only think of as a friend. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a guy at, at one of the agencies who said Calvin and Hobbes merch, they could have easily made between three and four hundred million dollars. Holy crap. So it's just, I would have loved it at that point if Bill Watterson uh, was like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> I probably approve all those uh, homemade bumper stickers now. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's like he could have taken that money and donating it probably saved a hundred thousand lives. But no, no, protect your stuffed tiger. <laughs> anyway, final tangent on this subject. I love this quote. Before doing someone a favor, make sure that he isn't a madman. <laughs> <laughs> All right, lesson three. There is power in aphorisms. So I love collecting cool quotes because I hate thinking for myself. And this book has <laughs> some good ones, and I'm, I'm going to hit a few of my favorites. So first, there's a great quote for the Facebook generation. It says, once, men turned their thinking over to machines in the hope that this would set them free, but that only permitted other men with machines to enslave them. <laughs> Another one, the most famous. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. Mm. And it's even better if you picture Inside Out and imagine Joy just murdering fear. <laughs> that makes it even darker when you consider the rest of the quote. Where the fear has gone will be nothing. Only I will remain. <laughs> How amazing, though, would that be just for brand exposure for Pixar to release a movie poster of the character Joy grinning with a bloody butcher's knife? <laughs> Inside way out. <laughs> Another one, Muad'Dib learned rapidly because his first training was in how to learn, and the first lesson of all was the basic trust that he could learn. It's shocking to find how many people do not believe they can learn. Mm. Another one, that which submits rules. The willow submits to the wind and prospers until one day it is many willows, a wall against the wind. Mm. And I think it's beautiful. And also, would you ever on a windy day take shelter behind a willow? <laughs> You know, when the when the air is blowing hard and you don't really want to feel it, but you do want a hundred whippings. <laughs> <laughs> the, the quote also reminds me of a great one by Francis Bacon. Nature to be commanded must be obeyed. All right, another one. If you rely only on your eyes, your other senses weaken. And I like it, one, because it encourages being multidisciplinary, kind of like the book Range. And two, it's literally true. There's evidence that when people are born blind, their brains rewire to heighten their other senses. Like there's this blind magician, Richard Turner, who has gotten a sense of touch so good, the mob kept trying to hire him to fix card games 
And so he had to start carrying a gun. Um, I don't know if this is true, but I heard someone describe it as each card to him feels very wide. It's something like the width of like an iPhone or something like that. I don't know if that's true. And I can't remember where I heard it, but it fascinates me. Wow. There's another magician. Leonard Green, who did a trick at a competition so good, they assumed he was cheating and disqualified him. (laughs) (laughs) And so now I love the idea of a magician being so great that they get burned as a witch. (laughs) This is why I drive with my eyes closed. (laughs) Yeah, I drive by taste. So I I just just watched this mini documentary on how Jamie Foxx prepared to play the character of Ray Charles. He is incredible. He's just like a a sponge when it comes to mimicking characteristics. He also wanted to do it blind. Wow. They tried different things. One of them was literally gluing his eyes shut. So he was committed to the (gasps) role. But the one thing that bothered me is that, you know, he did this for a few weeks, uh, but he told the story about uh, one day in the room as they were rehearsing, he asked somebody to stop flicking their pencil on the table, and everyone stopped, and it was a guy on the other side of the room with a pencil. <laughs> and he was like, you know, when you can't see, your other senses are height. And I just wanted to be like, come on. Like, <laughs> we would all hear that. <laughs> and how insulting would that be to every other blind person who's like lived without sight for decades? <laughs> And this one guy's like, oh, yeah, I know how that is. (laughs) All right, last aphorism, a lesson we can all learn. Any man who retreats into a cave which has only one opening deserves to die. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. By the way, if you like aphorisms, I really recommend the Oxford Book of Aphorisms. It just has so many gems. Well, they can't all be gems. That's the first one in there. (laughs) All right. Lesson four, some books are great to read once. (laughs) So I'm calling this, for me, the 1984 principle, where something can be a fascinating read, but it's not something that I'm going to revisit in a cozy nook. Quick aside, I think I've read 1984 like four times. (laughs) What makes you go back to that dark, hopeless world? I think I like some books that are gritty and that are about like big ideas and have like moral ambiguity and like struggles against oppressive systems. <laughs> That's kind of a a big red flag, Dave. <laughs> you know what I love is moral ambiguity. So you want to go out Friday? <laughs> if I stand you up, does it matter? <laughs> the narcissist in me loves the idea of being in, under constant observation. <laughs> If I lived in 1984, I would speak to the telescreen like a YouTuber, like, hey, Thought Police fam, it's Dave again. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's funny you say that, and I'm sure that other people smarter than me have made this point, but it, it is interesting to think the the one thing that George Orwell did not foresee was there would be little need for constant surveillance because eventually... Most people would just be exposing what they're doing constantly to the world anyway. (laughs) So Dune does so many things very successfully. 
It builds new worlds and cultures. It's got organic motivations. It feels like a sprawling epic. The prose is well-crafted. The story is complex, and it's completely humorless. <laughs> so I think Dune is a lot like Star Wars Episodes 1, 2, and 3. And before you diehards turn off the podcast, just know I'm not David Lynch. I'm not here to ruin Dune for anybody. <laughs> I just mean that I thought that episodes one, two, and three of Star Wars actually pretty successfully tell a story of governments clashing. It's literally a story about billions of life forms, and none of them have a personality. So that's how it's similar. <laughs> By the way, I would still rather read Dune for 30 hours and sit through that Anakin trilogy. But wasn't the name Anakin such a cool name until you saw him? <laughs> I remember after seeing that movie, being so hopeful and then just wanting to like it so much, but unable to suppress the disappointment. And then afterwards, a friend of mine, we were just, what, 17 at the time? I don't know if he really saw it this way or if he was trying to be hopeful too, but he was like, didn't you just sort of sense like a darkness to Anakin? <laughs> and I was like, no, what? The kid who just sat there and was like, yeah, I'm pretty good at building stuff. <laughs> Are you an angel? He said, evilly. <laughs> so Herbert does give you reasons to empathize with Paul Skywalker. I think that's his name. But can you name like a personality trait that any of these characters have that's interesting? <laughs> Like, the only ones I could think of is Paul has a kind heart, and he's assertive. Jessica is strong and assertive. The Duke <laughs> is Paul's dad and assertive. The Baron is fat. <laughs> Imagine if in that scene in Avengers Endgame, where everyone reappears, it had just been a thousand Captain Americas. <laughs> Anyone who says that Captain America is their favorite is just like, oh, sure. And who else? Leonardo? Like, no one. <laughs> if Captain America is your favorite, it just means Chris Evans is your favorite. <laughs> That's all it is. You like a handsome guy, but there's nothing interesting. Like, he has no flaw. His flaw is that he sounds like that pathetic guy at a job interview where he's like, I follow too many rules. <laughs> That's cool. Just know that if it weren't for your shield, no one would want to be you for Halloween. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm not saying that they needed Will Ferrell uh, to spice things up in the movie. And I, I do think that the movie does a much better job of uh, injecting the actual human behavior into the human, <laughs> at least from a personality perspective. And there were a few genuinely fun parts in the book, like writing on sandworms is such an exhilarating image. It's just mm -hmm. that the pattern of the book tends to be three pages of action followed by 200 pages of talking. <laughs> uh, so I guess it's less Star Wars and more Bible. So real quick, I, I recently started making a Google Doc, uh, a short list of movies that I think are great to see once, but that I won't be watching again. Invictus, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, Valkyrie, uh, Real Steel, 
and uh, Dead Poets Society. So I think one one thing that all these things have in common is that these are all well-made products, mm-hmm. but it's just not enough for me to care to revisit them. Like, there, it's not a waste of time. <laughs> I don't know that I super have that list because as soon as I see something that I quite like, my family makes fun of me because I'll go back to the theater and the second time I'll bring a notebook. <laughs> <laughs> just your family makes fun of you? <laughs> Oh, that would be really funny, though, if halfway through a movie, you go to the bathroom, and when you come back, you, like, sit next to someone with your pen and paper, and you're like, so what just happened? (laughs) Fill me in on the themes. (laughs) Okay, so real quick, speaking of reading things once, have you ever read something really short, and it just kind of sucker punches you? My girlfriend and I were in Vancouver, and there are these benches at Stanley Park with memorials on them. And we read one. It says, Ellen, loving you like everything I've ever lost came back to me. No mountain nor sea, nothing of this world could keep us apart, even time, because this is not my world. You are. It takes five seconds to read and then devastates you. It's it's like a literary grenade. So I wish I could think of one off the top of my head that it affected me, but I gave my wife five seconds worth of reading that affected her, that affected her more in a fun way, not in like a touching way. She had baked this pie. My wife loves pie and the process of, of making it. She cooked it, and then as she was pulling it out of the oven, she dropped it. Oh, no. And so that night, I had a show that night, and on the way back home, I stopped by a grocery store and grabbed a condolence card. So it said, like, I'm sorry for the loss of your father, but every time it said the word father, I crossed it out and put pie. (laughs) And it was just neat, because when I came home, she was still, like, visibly bummed, and I... I also had <laughs> surprised her with a fresh baked pie that I bought on the way home. Um, but it was just neat to see her go from like tear-stained face to laughing because she's reading like, just remember your pie will always be with you. <laughs> All right, random facts. So my favorite piece of exposition in the book is the first time Baron Harkonnen speaks because he says... Is it not a magnificent thing that I, the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, do? (laughs) Very much Jamie Lannister saying to Cersei, as your brother. (laughs) I'm going to do that the next time I'm shopping with my wife. Like, hands on my hips. Sure is great to be here in Costco with my wife, with our money, (laughs) buying things that we need to eat here in Valencia, California. Yeah. A good rule of thumb is your character should not talk like they're wearing a wire. (laughs) (laughs) So I have a new test for whether a movie is a good adaptation. So you read the book, you watch the movie, you read the book again, and then pay attention. Are you imagining the cast or the original people you imagined when you Uh. read it? (laughs) And if it's the cast, I think it's a good adaptation. Because I had that with Dune and Lord of the Rings and Pride and Prejudice. I never had that with Harry Potter. <laughs> so I enjoyed reading this book with the context of that this was all pre-Star Wars, because I think it's easy to 
once you've experienced one thing, even if the first thing actually influenced that second thing, you tend to sort of retroactively compare. I was so mad to learn that Shakespeare knocked off West Side Story. <laughs> and so I'm never a fan of ideas being stolen, but I'm okay with it. Like if ideas can inspire other ideas, it is fascinating to see like how many things that George Lucas sort of pulled from this. <laughs> I know book. And so here are just a few of the things that I've noted in me. Maybe you have some other examples. George Lucas genuinely was like, hey, what if Dune were fun? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it mostly takes place on a desert planet. There are two moons. <laughs> I love that right there. George Lucas was like, what if you did the same thing, but with suns? That's different <laughs> enough, right? There's an emperor, which I think is just a good move. It just sounds so much better than Space King. <laughs> there are smugglers. There's the Bene Gesserit, which is basically sort of this mystical secret organization that not everyone believes in their powers. So it's like the Jedi. The Sarlacc Pit is essentially a lazy sandworm. <laughs> I still think, though, that the phrase the forest still sounds much better than weirding, <laughs> <laughs> which is at least what the the Fremen call uh, the, the powers of the Bene Gesserit. All right. So my my friend Gregory loves Dune, and he was talking to me about the value of hard things. And he said, you know, the Emperor's army of Sardaukar is so fearsome because they grew up on this terrible hellhole planet full of suffering. And then they finally lose to an army that came from a planet that's even worse. <laughs> and so Gregory said, you know, look, if, if Hell Week is what makes Navy SEALs, imagine Hell Life. <laughs> and he, he pointed out that basically every religion has a coming of age ritual, and often that ritual is something that might kill you. So right now I'm just chewing on that idea of, you know, the value of difficult things. Sardaukar, it, it just sounds like something that you say when you're pretending to laugh at a bad joke. <laughs> it sounds like a duck-billed dinosaur. Sounds like a dinosaur that would be Dave's favorite dinosaur. <laughs> Wait for 10 reviewers to come to my defense. <laughs> So with this culture that Herbert has built uh, that's based on the scarcity of water, um, one of the more horrific things that they do is essentially become water vampires when someone dies. <laughs> It'd be funny if you just if Paul was observing them when they're like, we're about to begin the extraction, and then they just start drinking their blood. And they're like, hey, you said that they were like, well, you know, 80% of blood is water, so... <laughs> and then the Fremen wear their still suits so they don't sparkle in the sun. <laughs> <laughs> We're about to begin the sacred water extraction ritual. Silence, please. And then they just pull, like, life straws out of their packs. <laughs> what do you call that thing that you shove into a tree to get sap? It's like, it starts with SP. Tool to get sap. Yeah, that's right. I look up everything. <laughs> A spile. Okay, yeah, that's not a commonly enough 
known word. I'm just <laughs> I'm just gonna throw this out there, Dave, that if you have to Google something, <laughs> no one listening is gonna know what it is. <laughs> How to make friends. <laughs> <laughs> So one thing that I love, the Bene Gesserit are this order of powerful women with mystical powers, and they're so cool. And they sort of let in one man, and he's the best one. (laughs) (laughs) All right, to recap, our four favorite lessons from Dune. One, there is power in aphorisms. Two, create believable cultures. Three, look out for madman theory. Four, some books are great to read once. And five... If the only way your mom can figure out if you're special is to have you meet with a witch who makes you shove your hand in a box full of pain, you've got a messed up family. (laughs) ¶¶